congregation. If you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 10 is where I'll take my text this evening, 1 Samuel chapter 10. I'll read three portions of Scripture. Verse 1, Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? Verse 6, And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. Verse 24, And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. It is a tragedy of sorts in that God does not make mistakes when he anoints a man or a woman. God knows what he's doing. There's a song and we sing it. And I certainly would not call into question the integrity of the song. But right now, especially uh, to our generation, it's taking up quite a bit of, of airtime. But the name of the song is Reckless Love. I can't remember all the lyrics in particular, but it depicts a God who is tearing down doors in pursuit of a lost soul. And while that is true, that God will go anywhere looking for you, it's not because he is out of control. We serve a God that is in control. And if he is looking for you tonight, it is intentional. It's not because he is out of control and doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he is intentional in every way. And when God anoints, when God calls, and when God places purpose, he does it with intentions and he knows what he's doing. When God called Saul, he knew what he was doing. God did not make a mistake in his anointing of Saul. However, the tragedy of Saul's life is that Saul misinterpreted what God had called him to be. The Lord will help me for just a few moments this evening. I want to preach on this subject, the tragedy of misplaced purpose. The tragedy of misplaced purpose. Would you put your Bibles down, lift your hands, and open your hearts? Let's invite the Lord to speak all over this room. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for what we feel in this house already. Speak, Lord. We give you praise and glory and honor in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Samuel the prophet, a man born from adversity. He is a barren woman's prayer request. Eli will openly rebuke Hannah in the temple as she struggles to eke out the words of her request. Mislabeled as a drunken woman, Hannah clarifies her need to the seer of Israel. If God, she said, would grant me my petition, I will give my son back to the Lord that he may serve him in his temple all the days of his life. Samuel will learn the voice of God and will mature into perhaps the greatest prophet of the Hebrew people. Samuel never missed. And not a word fell to the ground. And from Dan to Beersheba, everyone knew that he was established to be the prophet of the Lord. 
Samuel never missed. It's in this context that Saul meets Samuel in their first encounter. It's here that Saul with an offering in his hand solicits the help of the prophet as he endeavors to recover the straying livestock from the family farm. Saul meets the prophet, a prophet that he can't even identify. And there, instructed by the Lord, Samuel takes a vial of oil and pours the anointing on the head of Saul and says, For God hath anointed you to be the captain of the Lord's heritage. God knows what he's doing when he anoints a man for his purpose. 1 Samuel chapter 9 says of the character of Saul, and there was not a goodlier man in all of Israel. Defined from its original transliteration, it literally means that Saul was the most appropriate intellectual and most valuable man in the nation. God chose Saul. He was the best that the nation had. He was brilliant. He was appropriate. He was the most valuable man in the nation armed with both propriety and intellect and now with the fresh smell of anointing oil on his brow from the anointed hands of the prophet who never missed. However, the tragedy of Saul's life is that he misinterpreted what God called him to be. God never called Saul to be the king. In fact, if you look at the references in our text, it isn't God that calls Saul king. In fact, the references to his being the king are only made when the kingdom is being revoked. God never called him to be the king. God anointed him to be the captain of the Lord's heritage. Captain is not a title for royalty. Captain is a position for a military commander. God never intended for Saul to be a palace-dwelling monarch. He was anointed to be a battle-ready defender of God's heritage. Can I stop right here and say the purpose on Saul's life that was misinterpreted was that he was never called to sit in the palace as a royal monarch. He was called to be a captain of the Lord's heritage because God intended for Saul to be a warrior, not a king. Can I help somebody in this room by saying, in the hour that we live, there are some things that are worth fighting for. There are some things that are worth fighting for. And God did not call the church to sit in the lazy boys of our affluency and be just royal monarchs but God called us to draw the sword and get right out in the middle of the battle. Jude said it this way. He said we should contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Can I help somebody? There are some things that are worth fighting for. And our doctrine is worth fighting for. We have evangelicals that don't even believe that repentance is necessary anymore. But I've come to tell somebody in this church that what it took generations ago to be saved is the same thing this book reminds us in this hour that remains the effective path to redemption. 
let me help you. You still have to repent of your sins. You still have to go to the water and be baptized in Jesus' name. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You still have to be baptized in the name. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You still have to have the Holy Ghost evidenced by speaking with tongues. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Without that spirit, you're not in the body. And we live in an hour where doctrine is being challenged. But I'm here to preach that it's worth defending. Some things are worth fighting for. You know, Brother Burke, one of the things that we're challenged with in the hour that we live is we become far too diplomatic with the enemy. We want to make deals. We're talking about this in the office. Man in my church, he told me one day, he said, we didn't verbalize it. It was an agreement of sorts. He said, but I, I told the enemy. Not in words, but in my actions. If you'll stay over there, I won't do nothing to hurt your kingdom. If you won't do anything to hurt my kingdom. I said, how's that going? He said, not too good. I said, because you don't negotiate with terrorists. He'll destroy you. He will destroy you. Let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible said in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 27, Neither give place to the devil. I'm going to help somebody right now if you'll hear me. You know what that literally means? Transliterated from its original context, it means run the devil off. Let me tell you what some of us need to do tonight. We need to stop approaching the enemy with diplomacy. And we need to take a posture of war and run the devil off. Some of you need to tell the enemy, you're not welcome in my house anymore. I wish somebody preached with me tonight, but I wish more importantly you'd take a posture against the enemy and say you can't have my kids. You can't have my family. You can't have my house. You can't have my finances. You can't have my church. Some of us need to unsheath our sword and take a posture of war and step away from the desk of diplomacy and take posture of war against the enemy. Greater is he that is within you than he that's in the world. You need to walk right out into that battlefield and take your marriage back. Take your home back. Take your children back. Take your lost husband back. Take your lost wife back. Take your church back. Take the revival culture back. I'm going to teach you a good word when it comes to negotiating with the enemy. No. No. Not for sale. You can't have doctrine. You can't have one lamb. Not one. I don't care how young, how weak, how least the contribution is to the church. You can't have one lamb in my flock. Because if you can have one lamb, you'll come back and take another. But I'm telling you, I wasn't called to be a monarch. I was called to be a shepherd and wait out right in the middle of the field and be a battle-ready defender of the Lord's heritage. I wish somebody lift your hands across this room and say, you can't have my health. You can't have my future. You can't have my finances. You can't have my faith. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Neither give place to the devil. The only way that you run him off 
is with a fight. A fight. You know, my dad, my dad told me, now, I, you know, I was raised, I was raised in the hills, you know. It wasn't a matter of if you were going to fight, it was a matter of when you got in a fight. My dad said one day, now son, I'm just going to teach you about a bar fight, okay? He didn't ask if I was going to a bar. He just was preparing me for when I went to the bar. He said, now you always sit with your back against the wall. He said, never ask for a spoon, always ask for a fork. Because it can be a weapon if you need to fight your way out of the bar. Never pull into a parking place, always back in. Because if you're running from the police or someone who's trying to shoot at you, you need to be able to pull straight out, not have to back up first. He said, and the last thing's this. He said, if you're ever in a fight, he said, whoever it is that you're fighting, you always leave a little route of escape for them. He said, because you ever back a man in a corner, he'll kill you. And the fact is that the enemy's tried to take advantage of some of us. And some of you walked in this room tonight and you felt like you were backed in a corner and you didn't have anywhere to go. You're just in the right posture for a miracle. All you have to do is get ready to fight. I'm going to tell you, the enemy's walked into some of your houses and he's backed you in a corner, but he got you in the right spot. We're not going to run this time, but you just unsheath the sword and wait off in the middle of the battle. And I'm telling you that God is on your side and he's going to make a way of escape while the enemy thought he had you. The Lord made a way of escape and you will win if you'll stay in the fight. Saul, Saul will circumvent the office of the prophet and offer his own burnt offering because Samuel has been delayed on his journey. I'm going to stop right here and just make a little parenthetical statement. That is that you better learn to wait on the Lord. Don't get out of your role and usurp control because you don't like God's timing. Time's a tattletale. You wait on the Lord because time has a way of identifying What immediacy will not reveal? Time. Time will expose the difference between tear and wheat. Time. He said, you wait off in that field prematurely. And you go to pulling out what you suspicion are tears. It's very possible to uproot something that will be beneficial in the harvest because you didn't give time a chance to bring revelation it'll identify the fool from the wise Matthew 25 said and there were five wise and five foolish but the genesis of that chapter said there were ten virgins. The thing that caused them to be categorized was time. And while the bridegroom tarried, if he comes early, he don't know the difference between the two. But time exposed the true content of their heart. 
Don't you wait. Don't you get out of your role because God hadn't answered in the time that you have dictated that he has to answer your request in. You wait on the Lord because God may be exposing something that you don't have the capacity to understand in the season you're living in now. But if you wait on the Lord, you'll know why you've had to wait. And it'll expose the wicked heart of a king who has deviated from the course he was called to. And while Samuel tarried on his journey, Saul offered his own burnt offering. I'm going to stop right here and just make this statement. And that is, you make sure that you stay in the right alignment with the man of God in your life. You, you better make sure that you have a covering. Ooh, I feel a little help in this house. You better make sure you stay in the right posture with your man of God. And don't run from man of God to man of God when you don't get the answer you want. Don't go build your own altar. Don't go usurp authority and take control of your own. Bible said, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. You know what the problem with living sacrifices are? Is that they don't die. And when you put them on the altar and the heat gets turned up a little bit, we keep wanting to jump off the altar and remain in control of our destiny. You better thank God you got a man who can step to that altar Amen. with you. But when you begin to circumvent that covering, it ain't long until you'll bring affliction in your life. Lord have mercy. You know what the problem with Jezebel is? The problem with Jezebel is she wants to be in control. She wants to be in charge. And she married a man whose name is Ahab. And Ahab don't even know who he is. In fact, his name means of another. He's just, he becomes whatever he's in the atmosphere of. If he's at church, he's a Christian. If he's with a, a heathen, he's a heathen. If the prophets of Baal are there, then he's with Baal. And if the prophets of Jehovah are there, he's with Jehovah. He don't even care what he is. But Jezebel, she knows who she is. But her name means unhusbanded, ungoverned, or uncovered. You see, we assign all these qualities to Jezebel of harlotry, immorality, and all of those things are true. But you know what makes her what she is? Because she don't have a man of God in her life. And her name literally means uncovered or ungoverned. Her husband's uncommitted and she's unsubmitted. And you put uncommitted and unsubmitted together and what they produce is a thalia and her name means affliction. You want affliction in your life. You let uncommitted and unsubmitted get together and they'll produce affliction that'll kill every one of the royal seed. Ooh, I wish somebody would help me in this house. You better make sure that you have an altar in your life. And you better be sure that you have a man of God in your life. Don't you dare. Don't you dare walk out of this house uncovered. You get on the phone and call your preacher. You send a text. You do smoke signals. You do whatever it takes to get his attention. And you say, preacher, if you see something that's wrong in my life, you make sure you lead me to the altar and get me in the right posture. But I can't afford to be uncovered in the hour I live you want the blessing of God in your life you better have a man of God in your life Saul 
Saul's not living in the right posture. Saul refuses to wait on God. And he's two to four years into his appointment when he builds his first altar. You better have an altar in your life. Altars are where sacrifice takes place. There's a scripture that we quote in Matthew 21. We especially like to quote it when we're talking about prayer. Bishop Williams, Jesus, almost in an uncharacteristic moment, walks into the temple and he takes this oppositional posture against the Pharisees. And then he makes this very powerful proclamation. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. How? How have they made it a den of thieves? Because he goes on to draw the same parallel with the buyer as he does the seller. If it was the misappropriation of weights and measurements, then he would defend the buyer. So it's not about money. It's about sacrifice. Because they don't have to go to their flock and get a lamb. They don't have to. Bishop, if you had a red heifer that you were going to bring to the altar, you literally have to take out a comb. They're doing it right now. To make sure that you use the appropriate sacrifice, you had to take out a comb and you had to comb that sacrifice's hair. And it couldn't have any more than four hairs that were any other color than red. Or it was not used on the altar because it could not have spot or blemish. If it had four hairs that were another color, they culled it and went on to the next one. And Jesus walks into a temple where no man has to go to his own flock he don't have to comb his own lamb. All he does is drive by the church as if it were a fast food drive through and flip a shekel in the hand of someone who had done all the work and walk up there and stand at the altar. You hear this preacher? It was the art of giving an offering without giving a sacrifice. made it easy it eliminated sacrifice for the art of convenience God help the church when we can drive by the house of God and we can bask in the afterglow of a sacrifice that somebody else made that we can live off of somebody else's prayer meeting and we can live off of somebody else's fast day and we can live off of somebody else's offering and we can live off of somebody else's tithing and we can sit in their building and we can worship God and feel the presence of the Lord and God walked in that house and he said I don't like what's in this room because you have made my house a den of thieves you're taking something that you did not work for help me somebody in this house God help the church when we can walk by the altar when we can walk by the altar and give an offering without ever giving a sacrifice God help the church that we are willing not to give out of abundance but we give out a sacrifice Romans 12, he said, present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's in verse 14. Samuel 
notice is in the spirit of this man whom God had commanded to be the captain of his people. Bible says that Saul is instructed to annihilate the Amalekites. Don't let one live. You kill every lamb. You kill every, you kill every, anything that is alive, you kill it. And the prophet shows up. And he said, is that the lowing of cattle I hear? Is that the bleeding of sheep? And Saul begins to explain. Well, we save the choicest to offer as sacrifices. The Bible said that Samuel looked at him and said, But now this kingdom shall not continue. For the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And hath commanded him to be captain over the Lord's heritage. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Anybody ever heard that asking forgiveness is better than asking permission? That's foolish. Because that's not what this book said. That's not what the word of God said. He said, obedience is better than your sacrifice. Thank God that you can bring a sacrifice. But the truth is, it would have been a whole lot better if you would just been obedient in the beginning. Just live in alignment at first. And then you don't have to bring a sacrifice to the altar. Just do what you're supposed to do. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Now, y'all stay with me because I'm going to preach you happy in just a minute. Rebellion. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. He said, your disobedience is as if you handcrafted a god and worshipped it. I didn't get any amens on that one. You know why? Because in your disobedience, you made yourself God. In your stubbornness, you made yourself God. You might as well handcraft an idol and burn incense to it because essentially you're doing that to yourself because you just took God off the throne of your life and you said, I'll make my decisions from here on out. And God looked at him and he said, you're disobedient. You have usurped the authority of this kingdom and because of this, I have rent the kingdom from you and I have given it to another who will be the captain of the Lord's heritage. So what do you do? Come here, Brother Bert. What do you do? When you refuse to build altars, what do you do when you circumvent the office of the prophet and you live out of alignment and uncovered with the man of God? What do you do? When you become so diplomatic with your approach to your enemy that you'll send a 15-year-old boy out to fight a giant that you are closest in stature to. If Saul is head and shoulders above all the other men in the nation then when Goliath walked out into the field at Elah He was more battle ready than this 15 year old boy. But he'd rather sit on his throne and bark out orders than unsheath his sword and get in the middle of the battle. What do you do? 
What do you do when you refuse to fight? When you become rebellious in your spirit? When you don't build altars? When you walk past the voice of the man of God? What do you do? Glad you asked. You become appearance oriented. Brother Williams. The Bible said that the maiden stood in the street and sang for David. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Bible doesn't say that Saul's mad that they're singing it. I'm sorry. He's not mad that it's true. Because if he was upset about the authenticity of the song, he'd have got up and done something about it. He's mad because they're saying it to the people. He don't care that it's true. He's just become so image conscious that he cares about what it looks like to everybody else. And the fact is he don't have authority anymore. He don't have anointing anymore. It's been rent from him and given to another. But it's still important to him to look like he has something that he don't have any longer. God help the church that we become appearance oriented where it's alright to look like the church and sound like the church but we fail to be the church. God help us that we know how to dress apart. We can stand on cue. We can put our hands together at just the right moment but the presence of the Lord don't show up in our meetings anymore and no addicts are delivered and no bound people are set free and folks aren't healed and we're all right to just look like church rather than possessing the promise that God gave us in our infancy. Bible said he took the prophet. He said, I want you to stand here by me. I want you to worship. I want you to worship with me. Because I want it to appear like I have something that has long since departed. I want to look like the church. I want to look like a king. I want to look like the monarch. Stand here in his rebellion without an altar, without a prophet's voice in his life, living in direct conflict with his calling. But he needs a prophet to stand there and make it look like he has something that's long since gone. 2 Timothy 3, 5 said they'll have a form of godliness. They'll look like it. They'll even sound like it sometimes. They'll even clap like it. They'll, they'll say the right thing, but they don't have the power anymore. God, help this generation in our church that we don't get satisfied with just showing up and having meetings and having wonderful social clubs, but there has to be an outpouring of the power of His Spirit every time we gather Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday Bible study. We need the power of God. I don't want to look like the church. I don't want to sound like preaching I don't want to sound like singing but let us possess our promise see when you become when you become appearance driven it won't be long Until you'll start taking shots at real anointing. Because even though you don't have it, you'll be able to identify it. 
And David has to escape the javelin-throwing antics of his backslidden father-in-law on at least two occasions. Because while he don't possess it, he knows what it looks like. So the Bible said, in his disobedience, how, how do you go from being God's chosen, anointed, empowered, intellectual, head and shoulders above all the rest, to the rejected that can't even coexist in the same room with true anointing. Glad you asked. Because he lost his ability to confront his enemy. Saul became diplomatic in his approach to his enemies both internal and external. Why do you send a lad with a sword and your armor when you are head and shoulders above the rest of the nation? Bible said that Samuel stands with Agag, the king of the Amalekites. The king that God instructed Saul to kill. Burn his city down. You don't let a lamb, a bull, or a ram stay alive. You kill everything in that city. And when the prophet shows up, King Agag is standing there beside Saul. He said, Bub, Is not the threat of war past us now? And the Bible said the old prophet took out a knife and he carved that heathen king up in front of the host of Israel. He killed the thing that Saul was anointed to kill. Let me just stop right here and, and say this. Don't ever call the preacher to kill something that you are anointed for. Too often times we want the pastor to be the judge. I'm going to explain that. Not a judge as in condemnation judge. But the Bible said in the days of the judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The judge showed up and rode, run the enemy off so that everybody else could do what they wanted to do. And if we're not careful, we don't want a pastor, we want a judge. We want somebody that will run the enemy off so we can go back to living however we want to live. And Saul's got a problem. He don't want a pastor, he wants a judge. He wants somebody that will kill the enemy off for him so he can keep living however he wants to live. Then lastly, the Bible said when an evil spirit came on him. He don't go look in the mirror. And say what is there in me that needs to change? What is this spirit from? He don't go to intercession. He don't go to the prayer closet. He don't find the prophet. The Bible said when an evil spirit came on him. That he would call for the harpist. The lyrist David, so that he could play his harp and drive off an evil spirit from Saul that Saul should have confronted in himself. The antithesis of Saul is the man after God's own heart. And he never met a fight he didn't like. I love David. In fact, we're introduced to David in a fight. We meet him walking out into the valley of Elah 
with a giant. Outmatched, outmanned, and outmaneuvered. David never met a fight he didn't like. And you know what prepared him for the fight? All the other fights. Bible said a bear tried to come take one of the little lambs. And David grabbed that bear and smote him. A lion came in and tried to take one of the lambs. And the Bible said that he grabbed him by the beard and he smote that lion. David got prayer prepared for the fight in a fight. I'm going to tell you something. I can help somebody in this room. Bible said David's got a harp under one arm and he's got a lion's beard in the other. There's not a whole lot you can't defeat with a song and a fight. And if something had happened in the church that we'd get a little battle ready, if we'd get the sword in our hand, we'd get a song in our lips. There's not an enemy too great that we can't have victory over with a fight in our spirit and a song playing on our lips. Standing at feet all over the room. David. David's about to die. It's the last words that are penned. As he is about to be gathered to his fathers. We meet David fighting. David is about to pass the kingdom on to his son Solomon. Bathsheba and the prophet are in the room. He gets the horn of oil ready. And he calls his boy over to him. Come here, Dustin. He said, my boy is about to be the king. Solomon. I got a few things to tell you first. It wasn't take care of mama. It wasn't be honorable. It wasn't have good character. It wasn't make sure that you go to the temple on a regular basis. It wasn't take care of the prophet. He spells all that out. But the last words before he dies, he said, son, Do you remember Joab? Yes, sir. Kill him. Same verse. Son, you remember Shimei? I let some things live I shouldn't have. Kill him. The very next phrase, and David was gathered unto his fathers. We're introduced to David in a fight. And when David dies, he's still got a fight in his spirit. David's life is framed by one mistake. His adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. When he walks out on the veranda and he peers into the windows of the neighboring estate and sees a bathing maiden and brings her to his house and kills her husband. Anybody know why David messed up? And in the time when kings go to war, David stayed home. Let me tell you, the only time you fail is when you quit fighting. The only time you lose is when you quit, when you get out of the battle. I'm going to tell you, you can win your families. You just got to stay in the fight. You can be victorious. You got to stay in the fight. I feel a little help in this room. Don't you dare give up now. I'll tell you why David is a man after God's own heart. It's because they had to pry the sword out of his cold dead fingers when he was gathered unto his fathers. If you'll stay in the fight, you'll please the Lord. You stay in the battle, God will fight for you. I got got a sweet little wife over here. She's nicer than me. Thank the Lord. I was away preaching 
My wife called me one day. She said, babe, oddest thing happened today. I said, what was it? She said, you know, Sherry, that I'm giving a Bible study to. I said, yeah. She said, we're driving down the road, and I'm taking her back home after ladies' Bible study. She said, Sherry morphs into something else. She said, like her, her spirit becomes something else. She said, and she starts to speak in a way that Sherry don't normally speak. She said, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Natalie said, it took me by surprise. She said, I didn't even know what to say. She said, but then I kind of realized what was going on. She said, Sherry, what'd you say? I said, that spirit spoke to her. Hear me now. That spirit spoke to her and said, I will destroy your family and I will bring chaos to your church if you don't leave me alone. Let me tell you something about the enemy. Is the enemy will go to your deepest insecurity. He'll go, he'll go to your weakest place and he'll put it on display so he can control you. I'm going to tell you, there couldn't have been anything, and I ain't going to go into all of this, but there couldn't have been anything that he could have spoken to that would have made her more vulnerable than to say, I will destroy your family and bring chaos to your church. She said, babe, I don't even know what came over me, but I got mad. She said, I remembered when I was a little girl she said, my dad said that you got more power in your pinky finger in the name of Jesus than the enemy has in all his arsenal. She said, so I just held up my pinky finger and said, Sherry, you tell that spirit to come back. She said, let me tell you something. I didn't come all this way to lose to the likes of you. She said, I didn't move all the way across Missouri to Kansas City to get in a battle that I can't win. She said, I got more power and authority in the name of Jesus. Can I tell somebody in this room that Sherry received the baptism of the Holy Ghost in our church? I want to tell somebody in this room, the only battles that you lose are the ones you refuse to fight. Some of you need to take out your sword and get right back in the middle of the battle. Greater is he that is within you than he that's in the world. You will be victorious and you win every battle that you will fight. Get out of your house. Leave your home. Get your sword out. Get off the throne. Get in the middle of the battle. Run the devil off. I'm going to take my house back. I'm taking my health back. I'm taking my finances back. I'm not going to sit at the desk of diplomacy when there is a battle.